This is an ABC podcast. Cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. Hello and welcome to Soul Search on RN, where at least sometimes we contemplate the grandest of mysteries. I'm Meredith Lake, and that was astronomer Carl Sagan with the opening of his award-winning series, Cosmos. A scientific survey of life and the universe that, when it was first broadcast in 1980, was the most widely watched series in the history of American public television. Cosmos has since aired in more than 60 countries and been seen by well over half a billion people around the world. Many have found its blend of science, agnosticism and flat-out wonder compelling, not least Carl Sagan's own daughter, Sasha. Sasha has just written a book and she joins me now over Skype from Boston to talk about meaning and wonder and the long-term task of processing the life and the loss of her dad. Sasha Sagan, it's really wonderful to have you on Soul Search. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm delighted to be here and and uh, you know across the planet, being able to connect is such a wonderful thing. Well, we have a lot to talk about today, but to begin with, you grew up in a really remarkable house, and that's true in all kinds of senses, but it includes the physical house. Can you take me to your early childhood home in Ithaca and describe it for us? Yes. Well, Ithaca is a very beautiful college town in the countryside of upstate New York. Um, Lots of waterfalls. The town uh, tourism motto is Ithaca is gorgeous, like G-O-R-G-E-S, because there are so many dramatic, gorgeous cliffs and waterfalls in this little town, and we lived in a house um, that was right on the the side of one of them with a really dramatic view of the town, and it was a house that had originally the, the main rectangular structure of the house before it was turned into a home was the headquarters in the 19-teens, I believe, of a secret society at Cornell University called the Sphinx Head Tomb. And somehow it, you know, went went on the market at some point. <laughs> I love and it. And a couple bedrooms were added in a kitchen. And it was the house that um, I lived in until I was about seven or eight. And, you know, it had this really, really dramatic exerior. But, you know, when you're a kid, everything is, seems normal. <laughs> in, including golden serpents above the doorway. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's kind of hidden away from the street. It, it was a it was a really interesting setting for for a lot of interesting conversations that we had as a family. Well, Sasha, can you tell me a little bit about your family? Because you you live there, presumably not on your own, but with your parents. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about exactly. your your mother and your father. So my dad was the astronomer and educator Carl Sagan, and he and my mom Andrian wrote together and um, they wrote many books together and essays and they created um, in the early 80s, just not long before my arrival on this world, um, they created a television series called Cosmos, which I think was one of the most popular and beloved science series um, of the time. And my mom carries on that legacy today and she produces and writes um, a newer version hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And my parents really raised me with this sense of, um, I always say skepticism, but not cynicism. They felt a romantic awe and wonder for the universe as revealed by science and nature as revealed by science. And they, you know, just the way they communicated that to viewers and readers around the world, they really instilled that in in me, and I think I can speak for my brothers, um, with this, this idea that when we follow the evidence uh, to discover what's really going on, you know, in the ways that we can as, as these, these little creatures on this planet, it, it's more amazing, more astonishing than, than anything that we could have imagined for ourselves. And the idea that science isn't just a, st- a set of facts, but a method for, for understanding where we are, what we're doing here, how we got here, and that it's beautiful. And so they really encouraged a lot of curiosity, a lot of questioning, and they had this enthusiasm that was contagious and that really was a source of a lot of intellectual and, for lack of a better word, spiritual enjoyment. There are crabs to be found here which have curious markings on their backs, patterns which resemble a human face with the aggressive scowl of a samurai warrior from medieval Japan. These hakey crabs, when caught, are not eaten. They're thrown back into the sea in commemoration of the doleful events of the Battle of Dano-Ura. Carl Sagan talking about samurai crabs in a segment from the hit TV series Cosmos, a landmark in science television and a runaway success in translating a sense of awe at the universe into popular entertainment. Today on Soul Search, I'm in conversation with Sasha Sagan. For her, science and wonder was a very personal family affair. Her parents collaborated on Cosmos and then had her a year or two later. So when did Sasha first see the show and encounter her father not only as dad, but as its famous presenter? I think in childhood I must have seen clips of it and like maybe specific things. I remember there's one sequence that is so 
really moving and enlightening about uh, the samurai crabs in Japan and how they evolved to have what seems like a human face on their shell. And I remember seeing that as a child. And it's it's a very, very moving story. And the way it's dra- dramatized was really emotional for me as a child. And I remember seeing bits and pieces like that. But then I, I lost my dad when I was 14. And after that, um, there was probably a period of time where it was a little bit too painful. But if, within a few years after that, the gift of having 13 hours of my dad um, talking about the things that were most interesting and most meaningful to him seemed like just this extremely lucky thing. Um, So over the years since then in teenagehood and, and beyond, I've definitely revisited it from time to time and and I have a little daughter now, and I'm looking forward to the time when when we sit down and show it to her. Your father at that time was, well, the most well-known scientist in America, along with David Attenborough in the UK, perhaps mm. one of the best-known scientists in the whole world, the public face of science in so many ways. And at the same time, this was the Cold War. Many scientists were engaged in the development of nuclear weapons, very different pursuits to your father. Mm-hmm. What do you think his vision was for science, not just as a, a set of knowledge, but as a worldview? Yes, it's true. It was a very tumultuous time. I mean, maybe maybe every, every epoch is in its own way. Certainly the one we're living through right now is, but my parents were very active and were a- against uh, nuclear weapons and um, were arrested at the Nevada nuclear test site protesting at that time. But I think that what my father, the the larger view, both my parents, um, but my father specifically as an astronomer, the idea that once you see our place in the universe as very small compared to the scale of the cosmos and that we are just orbiting a yellow star on the outskirts of a great galaxy among many, many galaxies, suddenly the differences between us as a species, the things that seem really dramatically different, you know, culturally, religiously, linguistically, are so minor compared to the picture that's available once we zoom out. And I think that that was one of the things that was revealed to my dad through his work and through his philosophy of, you know, pursuing the evidence and seeing science as not just a set of facts, but as a a philosophical source of, of understanding. And, you know, I think that the, what's so clear is that we are so much more alike than we are different. And, you know, a lot of the time that he spent trying to figure out if there was anyone else in the universe besides us, he didn't get a firm answer either way. But that pursuit and that question of, is there anyone else out there, reveals the amazing good fortune we have that we're here at all. And also that if there were anyone else out there, the differences between, you know, different groups, factions, of human beings would seem so imperceptible to anyone arriving from anywhere else. 
There's a, a line in one of your parents' collaborations, the movie Contact, where the main character interacts really with another life form. Mm -hmm. And the reflection on that is, you know, they should have sent a poet. And I wonder about the kind of household you grew up in, in terms of poetry, as well as science. How was that part of your, your upbringing and the way you were introduced to a sense of wonder about the world? Oh, both my parents were extremely well-read, not just in the, you know, area of their focus um, professionally. Um, you know, they both loved literature and poetry and I mean, literally like a very common thing. We had our Norton anthology of poetry and, you know, some weekend days um, we would pick out a poem in the morning and I would go memorize it and then recite it to my parents in the afternoon as a little activity. Um, but that sense that we have these divisions between, oh, you know, science and math versus, you know, the history of the world and literature and poetry and art they really instilled in me the sense that those divisions that we experience, for example, in school, you know, you have one teacher who teaches one subject, the bell rings, you go to a different class, somebody else is teaching that subject, and the overlap between them is sort of ignored often. And I think that my parents really went out of their way to instill this idea that the more you know anything, the more clues you have towards everything else and that we're all viewing our experience here on this planet, you know, in these different ways. And there's so much that, um, that overlaps and the, and the idea that, you know, we have this sense of like the cold, hard facts and the idea that like, you know, things that we, we look at in a scientific lens don't give us the tingling hair standing up on the back of our necks feeling that we get from art or poetry or literature or for that matter, religion. And I think that that is really does such a disservice to science because there's so much there that really is poetic and really is astonishingly beautiful, not just enlightening. This was a really tangible thing that your parents expressed with their idea to include with the Voyager space probe, a mm -hmm. kind of capsule, if you like, of a common humanity expressed in a variety of languages, a whole different range of music, images that would somehow capture the sounds and the sights of life on this planet. Mm -hmm. How is that part of your family story today? Well, for one, my parents realized that they were in love while they were working on it. So to me, it's it's one of the, I mean, right now, the two golden records um, on Voyager 1 and 2 are the furthest objects from Earth ever touched by human beings. And they have a shelf life of a billion years. And my mom often says it's sort of the equivalent of throwing a message in a bottle into the ocean maybe someday, maybe long after our species is here on this planet or, you know, maybe somewhere else, um, someone might encounter it. And it's also, you know, for me personally, it's the, the, the road that led to my existence because my parents fell in love while they were working on it. And there's, um, 
among other things, there's the sound of brainwaves of a young woman in love. And that young woman is my mom just, just after my parents revealed their feelings for each other. And my older half-brother, Nick, is among the many greetings in many dozens of human languages and one whale language. Um, my brother Nick is the is the voice that represents the English language, and he's a, he was a little boy at the time, and he says hello from the children of Earth, and it's really sweet. And you know, there's so much personal family history on this amazing thing that that is talking about art and poetry. It also includes music from around the world. And my parents felt very strongly that that was something that represented who we were, who we are as a species beyond some other maybe more scientifically based uh, offerings like the brain waves and, and similar. isn't it? To think that right now, 250 years on from Beethoven's birth, that recording of the first movement of his fifth symphony is flying through interstellar space. One of several pieces of music chosen by Carl Sagan and Andrewian back in the late 1970s for the golden records aboard the Voyager space probes. Well, here on Earth, you're listening to Soul Search, podcast and broadcast with ABC RN. I'm Meredith Lake, joined today by Sasha Sagan. She's a Boston-based writer, editor and television producer, and her first book has just come out. It's called For Small Creatures Such As We, Rituals for Finding Meaning in Our Unlikely World. A curious title, and Sasha explains what it's about. comes from a line in the novel Contact, and the name of my book is For Small Creatures Such As We, and the rest of that line is, For Small Creatures Such As We, the vastness is bearable only through love. And this is something that my parents wrote and something that um, they really believed, and this idea that if we are just small creatures who live for the blink of an eye, on an out-of-the-way planet, an enormous universe that's so grand and vast that we can barely, barely begin to comprehend it. You know, it's hard not to go into that sort of existential crisis that we all have (laughs) once in a while. But then what's on the other side of that? What do we have? And it's one another on this little lifeboat together. And this idea that we're in it together, and if you don't, if you don't believe, as as I do not, that everything is predestined, then it's random chance that we're here at this moment. And if you, you know, the feeling of being in love, or the feeling of loving your family, or having, the, you know, that close joy with your friends, those feelings that are so intense, and you know, in many ways biological, but no less 
beautiful because they are, that is so worthy of celebration and so meaningful. And that's what we do have, even if it's not forever. And in a way, I think because it's not forever, it's so magnificent that we're here right now. We only really have one word in English, love, Mm -hmm. that in other languages, there are many words for, and you've already begun to spell out some of the difference between parental love, love we have for our friends, for our children, for our parents, Mm. sometimes just for members of our species. From your family, you've also inherited a very powerful story about love. Can you tell me about your mother's grandparents, Tilly and Benjamin? Yes, I would love to. So for background, I should say, you know, my parents um, raised me in a secular way, philosophically without faith, but we had some cultural elements that were handed down to us, to me on both sides um, of Jewish traditions. And we did celebrate, you know, holidays and, and other traditions in a secular way to honor our ancestors. And two of those ancestors, my, my mother's grandparents, were very Orthodox Jews who came from Eastern Europe to New York City. And they had um, my wonderful grandfather, Harry, in New York. And they raised him, you know, in their traditions. And he he went off to college, to New York University, which many, many years later I also attended. And, you know, as university can do. It made him question some of the things that he had been brought up with. And um, one day he came home to his parents' house and he found his father davening, praying, um, and he waited for him to finish. This is as the story was passed down to me, of course. And he, his father looked up at him and he said, you know, dad, I have to tell you something. Um, I'm not going to go to shul anymore. I'm not going to keep kosher. I'm not going to keep Shabbat because I just, I, I don't believe. And just, I picture that moment of just bracing for a reaction. And his father said to him, the only sin would be to pretend. And that was so powerful that many decades later, when it was told to me, it was this this revelatory idea still of you you cannot force belief or non-belief and the idea is if you, if those traditions and those beliefs don't work for you you are not bound to them um you're not obligated you have to go out into the world and figure out what works for you and of course i think because my grandfather didn't feel forced or obligated he found a way to carry on some of the traditions of his parents and holidays and some of the rituals without carrying the stuff that did not mean the same thing to him that it did to them. And so by the time I came around, um, my family and, you know, similar background on my dad's side, but this idea that you can't do it out of obligation. You have to do what's right for you and what is meaningful for you. And there is that there is a way to honor your, your ancestors and your family without being bound 
by their beliefs and traditions. And I think that that was a really, really powerful idea. And I also have a theory that, you know, those who truly, truly believe and truly are devout are much less threatened by the lack of faith of others. I think that it was because my great-grandfather Benjamin was a true believer that he did not feel that someone else's, even his son's, skepticism was a threat to him. It's a really remarkable thing, I think, to grow up in a family where questioning or even departing from the faith of previous generations doesn't mean a breach of relationship. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more concretely about what the celebrations and traditions that you grew up with involved? I know you continued to celebrate Pesach or Passover as well as other things. We did Hanukkah um, because we lived in a place where, you know, it gets very cold and dark in December, close to the winter solstice. And I think there is something innate about wanting some cheer and light and joy and celebration in that in that time of year. And so, you know, we lit the menorah for eight nights and we would exchange gifts and have potato pancakes, latkes. Um, And so that was great because when the days are very short and it's cold, you do need something. I firmly believe that. And in the spring, we would have Passover, a secular Seder, which is the, you know, traditional meal and reading. And it's it's sort of a very ancient drinking game with reading aloud and a big (laughs) meal and symbolic food and all sorts of, you know, retelling of the story of the Jewish peoples as told in Exodus escape from Egypt. And, you know, when it's done in a theistic way, it's very much about gratitude to God for helping with the, with the escape and facilitating the escape. And when it's done in a secular way, the idea is the story is that we were enslaved and now we are free But other people today are still enslaved metaphorically and literally, and it is on us to make the world more fair in some way, and that it can be a call to social justice in a secular way to take this moment to say, we, our people at one point had it rough, and now it's our job to help those who are not as lucky as we are today. And the other element of it is that it is innately a spring holiday. And much like Easter and many other spring holidays, there is a narrative of, wow, that was close, but looks like we're going to be okay now. And to me, that is spring itself for so much of the history of our species. When food was scarce in the winter, when it was cold, it was not a given that everyone in the tribe or in the village would survive. And once the spring equinox came, once the flowers started to bloom, you know, it was this sense of relief that we made it through. And I think that that any tradition, any worldview, there's something really, really valuable about that feeling. And, you know, some of these things are just innately tied to the seasonal changes. I think the traditions that mark these changes and that have maybe in the subtext a message about what's happening in the natural world, 
those are really easy traditions and rituals and holidays to celebrate in a secular way that, that don't require any, any belief or faith. Sasha, I'd really like to talk to you at a bit more length about ritual and celebration. I mean, it's a huge theme of what your own reflections and your own writing is about. But just to stick a little bit longer with yeah. the kind of um, the texture of your own upbringing, the other key figure that you write about and that's clearly been significant for you as you've reflected on ritual and its meaning and its role in our lives was your nanny as a young yes. child. Can you tell me about her? Absolutely. She was wonderful. Maruha Farhe. She came to live with us when I was six weeks old, and um, she had been a cloistered nun in the Andes Mountains um, before she became a nanny, and um, she was devoutly Roman Catholic. She left the convent, but not, not because of a crisis of faith, but she was incredibly kind, loving, funny person with whom I spent a lot of time. We only spoke Spanish to each other and she was someone I loved. She's no longer here, but someone I loved and, and admired and adored all my life. And, um, I knew that what she believed as a Roman Catholic was totally different than what my parents believed. And that was completely fine. And she, she was completely open about her beliefs. She would sometimes take me to church with her, which I loved because I like um, really ornate um, places with high ceilings where people are dressed <laughs> up, as I, I still do. Because she was so open and my parents were so open and there was no controversy, there was certainly no censorship, and there was no controversy about the idea that people can love each other and have totally different philosophical views and one is not a threat to the other. Um, I think I learned a lot from that experience. And one of the clearest memories I have of how, how these kinds of questions um, came to a head in my little brain as a child, I write about in the book, which was, I was sort of, I would say a little, little bit of a <laughs> morbid child and just really curious about <laughs> death. And, um, and one day I went to my parents and I said, you know, um, Maruha says that when you die, you go to heaven and you're with God and the angels and you guys say that it's like you're asleep forever without dreaming. Um, who may I ask, um, is right about this. And my parents in unison joyfully said, nobody knows. And that idea that there are some questions for which we do not have the answer yet, you know, in this case, a question we will all eventually get the answer to, but that it was okay to say we don't know. And it was okay to say, even though this is what I, I you know, the evidence that I have leads me to this, there are some open questions that the urge to put an answer there is so strong sometimes. We we feel so uncomfortable with not knowing as human beings that that sometimes we just put something there because we need to have an answer there. Um, not just about philosophical questions, but I mean everyday, you know, experiences waiting for an important email, romantic things, you know, all the things that, that we do where we just cannot take 
the feeling of, of having that open question. And I think that exercise, that practice of saying there are some things we don't know was really powerful. And it was such a respectful answer too, because they could have said, well, we really think that it's this, but you know, there are some mysteries to which we don't, we don't have the answer to yet. And I just feel so lucky that I got exposed to Maruha's not just love and kindness, but the idea that not everybody sees the world the way my parents saw it. And just, you know, it's so easy to put someone at arm's length if they're different, when, especially when, when you're young and you're trying to understand how the world works. And it was just such a lucky thing to have somebody um, like Maruha in my life for many, many reasons. But one of them was I got a sense that, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of different ways to, to look at what we're doing here and how we got here. Sasha Sagan on learning to live with diversity and uncertainty on the big questions of existence. I'm Meredith Lake and Sasha is my guest on Soul Search today, on air with RN in Australia and via the Soul Search podcast, wherever you might be on what her father, Carl Sagan, famously called this pale blue dot. Now, death is obviously one of the great questions we all have to deal with, whether we're religious or not. And beyond a practice of saying, I don't know, I wonder what Sasha Sagan learned about it growing up in a secular household. I have a really clear memory being small and my dad referring to something about his parents and me thinking, huh, I wonder why I've never met them. Cause I know my other grandparents, my mom's parents really well. I wonder why I've never met my dad's parents. And I asked him and he said, well, it's because they're dead. And my first question was, will you ever see them again? And he, he said, you know, that there was nothing that he would like more, but he didn't have any evidence to, to support that idea. And I think that sort of goes in line with the nobody knows stuff. But what I think my parents really, you know, it was really, that's a, it's a really hard revelation to learn that, that this, this, whatever it is, whatever comes after or doesn't come after that this, what we're experiencing right this moment is not forever even if there's something else later, it's not this. And the idea that this is finite is a really hard thing to learn. My my um, husband's grandfather, so my daughter's great-grandfather, just passed away in June, and it was the first person that we had to really uh, tell her, you know, was gone and that we they would not be back. And so we're starting to have some of these conversations now in our own house. I mean, that's a huge... I've had to have similar conversations actually with my own young one. And yeah. how did you deal with that? So we said, Pop, we called him, um, Pop has died. And we said, you know, this is part of nature. And she had recently learned the concept of 
happy crying. <laughs> and so we we're sad and we we're crying. And she said, are you, is this happy crying or sad crying? And we said, well, it's sad because we will miss him, but it's happy because he had a very full, happy, long life. And, um, we're very lucky that we got to spend so much time with him. And, you know, we said, this is part of nature. This happens. Um, he was very old. We haven't really gotten to the idea that tragically it doesn't only happen when someone's very old, but, you know, we're trying to do this little by little and she has a lot of questions about it. And she's, she recently saw her first movie, which is Mary Poppins and the, the old bank president in Mary Poppins dies laughing. And so she had a lot of questions about that. And I think just as hard as it is to just look a child in the eye and say, this person that you love is not coming back. I think it's easier to learn that when you're young than come face to face with it later. Um, I think, I mean, we'll see. It's like all parenting. It's an experiment We're we're, we're doing what we feel is right. Um, and what, you know, we think is, is right for her. But I think that, that idea that this is part of nature and something that my parents really instilled in me was the idea that, as I sort of mentioned or alluded to earlier, you know, if we lived forever, none of this would be special. Nothing would have the same meaning that it does. There would be no urgency. There would be no sense of the joy and excitement and pleasure that we have because it would just, it, there, there would be no end. And so it's the fact that we're here at all and the fact that we get to, you know, have these experiences together that makes it so beautiful. And I think the idea that this is part of nature, this is part of how we exist and that we cannot have the beauty and joy of life if there's not the antithesis, just as we cannot have, you know, summer is meaningless if you don't have winter. All of these things is the contrast that makes it clear why, why it's so important. Sasha, you mentioned that you lost your father when you were only 14. And like any major loss like that, I guess it's something you kind of learn to live with in an ongoing way over yeah. the course of your own life. In your case, as you mentioned, it was a, a curious process in that his public profile, the fact that there were recordings and so many other, you know, aspects of his work that were in the public domain and accessible to you even after he'd gone. Yeah. Gave that process a particular shape for you. I'm curious about how you engaged with him as an author. I mean, yeah. you, you had saved reading his books uh, until a particular point in your life. And I wonder if you could just tell me about why you didn't do that straight away and why you read them when you did. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so lucky because I have, you know, I guess now people have so much video of their friends and family because we all have um, these amazing machines in our pockets that make that very easy. But my dad died in 1996 and, you know, it wasn't the same. I mean, maybe you had a home camcorder, um, home video, but like, it wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. And so, but because of the nature of his work, I had all this, this footage, um, of him and 
all these books and essays. And I had read some of his work as a, you know, early teenager before he died. But after, um, I waited a long time to read the bulk of his work, his work with my mom and his work alone. And I still have several books that I haven't read yet because in my mind, this idea that I still have some part of him in my future to discover is so reassuring because it's very hard when you lose someone and feeling like all of them, all of your experience with them is behind you. And as time goes on, I mean, one of the hardest things long-term with grief is that feeling that as you're getting further away from their death, you're losing little parts of them, little memories, certain things become foggy, certain details go away. I mean, that is one of the hardest, hardest things. And so for me, knowing that there are still a couple books that I haven't opened yet, um, and that when I really feel like I am missing him intensely, I can, I can go open a book and there's probably lots of essays that I find strangely very reassuring. But when I was pregnant with my daughter, a whole bunch of, um, my parents' work was released on audiobook, and there were some recordings that he had done, you know, chapters, not really whole books, but some passages that they had of him um, reading his own work. And I just, it was so special and so moving and so meaningful for me to have that, especially while I was pregnant and just thinking, you know, the other thing that, you know, for me, it really helps with, with, um, loss and grief and also almost seems mythical to me is this idea that if you have a relative, let's say a parent and you, you lose them. Um, and then later, as I did, you have a child, some part of them literally lives on in that child. You know, this is something that as long as I live, I'll never get over this astonishing again, poetry and beauty of the idea that in your veins, there is a secret code in your blood that connects you to your ancestors. You literally carry them on, carry on their, their life, their legacy, their characteristics in your body. And, you know, if you don't know anything about your background or where you came from, you know, you can find out through the majesty of science, you can find out answers to who you are. I mean, that is something out of a fairy tale if you look at it that way rather than, you know, maybe like focusing on some of the drier elements of DNA that the way we like learn about it in biology class. It's so amazing. And so when I think, you know, my daughter and, and, you know, maybe someday down the road, if I have more children, the, the idea that they really do carry on some part of my dad is so beautiful and reassuring and it requires no faith. On RN, that's Sasha Sagan making sense of the death of her father, cosmologist Carl Sagan, who died back in 1996. And blind Willie Johnson, 
with his blues masterpiece of the 1920s, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. Carl Sagan and Andrewian included that track on the Golden Records, a selection of music and other sounds from Earth dispatched into space with the Voyager space probes. Sasha Sagan's parents often wondered if we're alone in this vast universe. Will anyone ever play or hear those records? Either way, how do we find meaning in our lives, here and now? Sasha thinks that ritual might be part of the answer. Rituals are, in my mind, a tool for processing change. You know, changing of the seasons, uh, birth, coming of age, and death. These are natural changes that happen, and we have rituals around them so that we don't all of a sudden turn around and say, oh my goodness, all this time has passed. Or there's so, you know, the coming of age, oh, this child is now an adult and I just blinked my eyes and all of a sudden everything's different. And I think that's, that's why we have them. That's why independently around the world, so many, I mean, every culture has created them. You know, it's interesting. I think more and more, at least in the United States, I think probably in a lot of the world, weddings are one tradition ritual that, you know, it's really, it's, it's this, very clear event that is this change, right? Two people go from being independent, sort of, and um, then you go through this sort of performance, which I don't mean negatively at all, but it's like a play that we put on for ourselves where there's a set and there's costumes and there's a script and there's an audience. And at the end, we are transformed. And it's not just the two people who are getting married, who are transformed, but it's the community, you know, around them. It's the loved ones. It's like, oh, wow, now this person, these two people are united in this, in this way. And I think that's a, a ritual that historically has been, you know, very religious in nature. And I think more and more you see, you know, couples having their friends officiate and, you know, poetry instead of, uh, religious passages being read, and it's sort of taken on this life of its own. Um, but the value of the ritual, of the experience to celebrate something really beautiful, two people who just are so crazy about each other, they want to be together forever. I mean, it's so amazing. And, and it's like we, I think, really gravitate towards um, I mean, especially now in this moment where we can't be in big groups and we can't be together for these events, it seems so crystal clear how important they are to us. And I think, you know, life on earth is full of constant change. These changes, these events just call out for some kind of acknowledgement that things are not the same as they were before. Sasha, I was fascinated by your account of celebration as something distinctive to our species. Mm. Also, the way you identified, as, as you just explained, biology 
and perhaps also astronomy as yes. the kind of the the ground from which ritual springs. But in in this secular version of those the ritual commemoration or remembrance of those things, I wonder if it is equivalent to the religious ways that much of humanity through humanity's history has marked those things. Do you think anything's lost by this secularizing process? Can it be well, entirely repackaged or transferred? Well, I think I don't think of it as being repackaged or transferred so much as it's just, you know, in order for something to survive, it has to mutate. And if, if people are devoutly religious, then that's you are all set. You have this whole framework and you know, I don't see it as my role. You know, I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from their from sure. their belief at all. And but I think that if you're if you have doubt or you it just, you know, some or all of the religious tradition that you were brought up in doesn't quite fit. You still need these moments um, and these rites of passage and these ways of processing these changes. And I think sometimes there's a temptation to just go through the motions and do the, do the religious version because it's tried and true. And, you know, that works, and a lot of people do that. But I think if you feel like you want to celebrate and mark time and grieve in a way that reflects your philosophy, and it's not, it's not a theistic philosophy, what I'm really interested in is how do we do that? And I would argue that, you know, the things that feel very traditional to us are new on the scale of human history. My mother often talks about the our idea of nature and understanding nature and our idea of our God and gods used to be one thing. And, you know, a lot of us are suffering from, as my mom calls it, post-Copernican stress disorder. And this idea that, like, <laughs> the, you yeah. know... that We're not um, the center of the universe. Right. And the idea that our religious understanding and our scientific understanding are at odds that, you know, us not being the center of the universe is a problem because it doesn't match up with some other stuff that historically we were told. I think that that is the root of so much of this where what I would love is if we were operating in a way where the more we understood about nature, the more we understood about our place in the universe and how we got here, the the closer we felt to that sense of spirituality for, for lack of a maybe more secular word, but that where we felt deeper connection with the grandeur of it all and with one another, um, the more deeply we understood how everything worked um, by following the scientific evidence. You've used that word spiritual a couple of times so far in this conversation. And I wonder if that's a word you would apply to yourself these days? And if yes, in, in what kind of sense? It's, that's a really good question. I spend a lot of time thinking about that word. And, you know, it does have a theistic connotation. Um, but it also describes something that I really feel when I look up at the night sky or the revelation of that first image of the black hole that we got 
in the last couple of years. And, you know, these moments where there's some clarity, some deep understanding, or you just feel yourself as a little tiny grain of sand in, in this enormous universe. I mean, even just being in the ocean, that feeling, you know, it, I guess the closest word that I have is, is spiritual to that, that sensation. And I think, yeah, I do. I guess I do think of myself. It's funny. I probably wouldn't, wouldn't describe myself as spiritual, but I also don't have a better word for that feeling because I think that that sense of connection to everything and that feeling that there is this huge, unknown, mysterious, wondrous universe all around us and that we can derive joy and pleasure from feeling connected to that. In my case, it would be through understanding, through learning. Um, I think that that is very similar to the experience that people feel in a religious context uh, that they would describe as that spiritual feeling. Sasha Sagan is a Boston-based essayist, editor, and producer whose first book is called For Small Creatures Such As We. It's partly a memoir of her secular upbringing as the daughter of writer Andrewian and planetary scientist Carl Sagan. And it's partly an exploration of why people need ritual, even if they're not religious. If you'd like to find out more about Sasha or her writing, you'll find some links and information on the Soul Search program page, where you can also catch up on any part of this conversation that you might have missed and stream some other great stories about spirituality, religion and the search for meaning. Remember to subscribe to Soul Search as a podcast, however you usually do that. For now, thanks to Soul Search producer Mariam Shahab and to the RN Sound Engineers. I'm Meredith Lake, signing off from RN, your home of ideas. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.